Um, so I thought, uh, again, slightly differently. We do it differently every week at the moment. Um, but drawing on some of the research we're doing at the moment, um, we're going to take a historical look at some of the data around the resurrection. And of course, as Christians, we often approach the Bible and read it uh, with the mindset that this is an inspired revelation from God and therefore reliable and therefore we just sort of read it and take it as given. But it is interesting sometimes to um, set that aside, as it were, and to approach the Bible just in purely historical terms. Uh, what would you glean from it, uh, even if you didn't believe that it was a revelation from God? Uh, uh, indeed, what would you glean from it, even if you approached it with a fairly sceptical mindset, saying, um, this is probably pretty unreliable, but I'm going to approach it with the, the kind of standard tests that historians will use when approaching any ancient uh, bit of history or biography as the Gospels are and so on and see what bits of information stand out as ones that I have to take on board uh, to deal with. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of this in any detail uh, which is why I've done the handouts for you if you want to go through in detail later. Um, but historians, uh, particularly in the new field of New Testament studies talk about these um, historical criteria of authenticity. Uh, they're basically tests that you apply to a text to say, even if this text is generally unreliable, if things in this text pass one or more of these tests, then I should take it seriously. And the more of these tests a thing passes, the more seriously I'm going to take it. Now, of course, the, the more you find a particular text meets these tests as you apply it to it, the more sort of general confidence you start getting in a particular text, a particular writer, or what have you. Uh, and so if, you know, the Gospel of Luke keeps on passing these historical tests, then you might well start thinking, well, Luke's probably quite, quite a good historian, actually. And you'd start taking stuff seriously in Luke, even if it didn't pass one of these texts, tests specifically, because so much else that he writes that can be tested turns out to be reliable. Um, and that's how your sort of general confidence in a particular text or historian or writer sort of goes up. Uh, because where you can check them out independently, as it were, um, using these tests, uh, they tend to pass them. Um, and scholars will argue about how to frame these tests and which ones are most important and so on. I've, I've put them in a sort of general ranking. Uh, but most of them are pretty sort of common sense stuff, I think, such as um, when you're looking for historical information, you want to look for the earliest sources that you can find. The earlier, the closer to the actual events, the better because there's less time for people to forget stuff or make stuff up. Um, having multiple or independent sources for something, the more independent witnesses you have on the stand in court saying that Fred was the carjacker, the more likely you are to think that Fred was the carjacker. Okay. Um, and that comes in various um, nuances, um, particularly such as coming in, in different forms. So if you find a bit of information mentioned in a, in a gospel, which is a biography, also mentioned in the letters, sort of in the epistles, also mentioned in, say, a hymn or a creed, also mentioned in a parable. Um, there's are different sorts of texts from different sorts of sources. Um, then you would uh, think, gosh, you know, this, this bit of information it, it is sort of so well known that it's worked its way into all of these different kinds of literature from that era. So that, that's probably a reliable thing and so on. Uh, do feel free at any time uh, to ask a question if I'm not 
clear or a question occurs to you. Quite um, of embarrassment yeah, is, a, is a nice one. People don't tend to tell stories against themselves. So things like the fact that the Gospels often put the disciples in a bad light and show that they didn't have faith or that they mucked up or whatever. Um, you tend to think, well, that's probably reliable. Um, particularly interesting here is the fact that it's often thought that Mark's Gospel, a lot of the information comes from Peter, that Mark was kind of writing down Peter's teaching stories in a lot of Mark's Gospel. And Mark's Gospel is the one that it mentions Peter first and last of all the disciples, which is a kind of ancient way of doing a quotation mark, because they didn't have punctuation back then. Um, and also, it's the Gospel that puts Peter in the worst light of all of, the, all of the Gospels. It goes into the most detail of Peter stuffing stuff up royally. Um, and the fact that we think, you know, Mark is basically putting down Peter's teaching stories, we think, well, that's probably reliable, because why would Peter, pillar of the church, leading the church in Rome and so on, tell stories that put him, puts himself in a bad light if he doesn't have to? Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, important in terms of the resurrection is the fact that women get mentioned in the story a lot. Uh, and uh, just a cultural fact about first century Palestinian Jewish culture is that women were second-class citizens. Uh, women were not considered reliable truth-tellers. Uh, their testimony in court, at the very least, counted as less than the testimony of a man in court, for instance. So when you find the Gospels saying things like, uh, yeah, it was the women who knew where the tomb was. It was the women who discovered that the tomb was empty. It was the women who first met the resurrected Jesus. In cultural terms, that's embarrassing yeah. for the Gospel writers. Uh, and we'll see when we compare the Gospels to the sort of official summary of what happened at the resurrection in the Creed in 1 Corinthians 15, the 1 Corinthians 15 Creed doesn't mention any women they get whitewashed out of the sort of official summary of teaching. But they are mentioned in, in the Gospels, which is, which is interesting. Um, other things, um, this uh, historical congruence or Palestinian colouring or Semitism is sort of slightly different versions of the same thing. Because the Gospels are written in Greek, but the events that they're talking about would have happened probably mainly in Aramaic. Uh, when you get bits of Aramaic in the Gospels, that's probably because people have remembered the actual words. Uh, so when you have things like um, Jesus' use of Abba, Abba Father, um, uh, Talitha Kum, the little girl, rise up, or um, on the cross, Jesus recorded as, as saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama thabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, you get these, you suddenly go from Greek into a quotation, as it were, in the original language. And that's often sort, thought to be a sign of, this is getting us back to the actual uh, event. Um, criteria of memorability. Um, Partly this refers to a lot of the teaching of Jesus, for example, is deliberately framed in ways that are memorable uh, in using various poetic devices that we lose in the English translation, but you can kind of see are there and the sort of convert it back or the, the structure of the thing. But also, I mean, people tend to remember really memorable life-changing events. And if someone's telling you about a really memorable life-changing event, you, you probably take that a bit more seriously than if they say, oh yeah, 20 years ago I, I had I had Weetabix on a Tuesday. <laughs> you know, unless, unless, they're, unless they're also going to tell you, well, I always have Weetabix every day. It's like, you think, it's not very likely that they're going to remember what they had for breakfast 20 years ago, you know. But if they say, yeah, yeah, that was the day that our first grandchild was born, <laughs> And this happened, and that happened, and the, the train was delayed, and we had to stop at Winchester, and oh, it was all this, that, and the other. 
then you think, yeah, that probably is the sort of thing that would stick in your memory, and you'll still be telling the story about today and the trains and everything in 20 years' time. Um, similarly, when people sort of say, yeah, um, my best mate was, was dead, and we were all really scared, and then we met him alive again, and then we told everyone, even though they were going to persecute us because of it, you think, well, if that did happen, that probably would have been a bearable thing. <laughs> so it would have stood, it would have stood out. Uh, so those are the kind of, kind of list of thoughts of, of tests that historians have in mind when they're approaching a, te a text, not assuming that it's reliable in any shape or form, but saying if there are things in this text that's going to meet one or more of these criteria, then I should probably take it seriously uh, as a historian. Yeah. Uh, any questions on those? How do you, how do you just, you've got multiple sources, mm. how do you know they're not all from the same original source and they're doing what journalists do today and just look at yeah. Wikipedia and yes. misquote? Copying each, each other. other, yeah, yeah. So of course it's a lot easier to do that today than it was back in the first century because they didn't have Wikipedia and so on. Uh, they'd, have, they'd have to have had access to the source. Mm. Uh, but uh, partly this is it's to do with uh, figuring out the sort of literary dependence of one thing on another thing. Um, so you'll, you'll notice, people notice that uh, big chunks of Matthew and Luke's Gospel are very similar to big chunks of Mark's Gospel. And the general opinion among scholars is that, that Matthew and Luke had access to Mark's Gospel and based bits of theirs on his. Um, so yeah, so if Mark tells a story and then Matthew repeats it, that's not an independent witness. Mm. Um, but it it doesn't mean that there's, it, it's still multiple, it doesn't mean there's no kind of use to the test there. Because, for example, if you look at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, you see the way in which he says, many people have tried to tell this story, but I have investigated everything, and gone and interviewed people, and looked at the sources, and I'm, I've checked it out, and I'm now writing an orderly account. So, even if he does quote Mark, as it were, or, or heavily sort of base what he says upon Mark, that doesn't mean that he himself hasn't independently checked it out, because he says at the beginning of his gospel that he has. Um, but yeah, it is more impressive when, for example, you find a story in one of the Matthew, Mark, Luke synoptic gospels and in John, because there seems to be no literary dependence between John and the synoptics. He, he, there's no overlap in the the wording. There's not much overlap in a lot of the stories. John tells a lot of different things, leaves out things that synoptics say, says things that synoptics don't, words things very differently. And it's, it's generally accepted that John is an independent source. Uh, and then, of course, you get this thing of independent forms. So if you find a bit of information in... The synoptic in the Gospels, in the letters, um, in a hymn quoted in a letter, uh, in a creed quoted in a letter, in an apocalyptic visionary bit of literature like Revelation. If you find something in all of those different forms, then that would also count as a multiple independent uh, witness to things. Yeah. So you 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 are teasing things out, and it is. Uh, more weighty to have independent witnesses than simply multiple, and to have independent forms than simply multiple. But multiple's not necessarily useless, as it were. Uh, but you do have to be careful, as you say, you're not just counting, well, Fred quotes Bob, so that's two witnesses! You know, it's, yeah, you want to try and avoid that, quite right. Yeah, so, uh, <coughs> don't 
just to get an outline of the sort of passion events, uh, the, the common content of the, the primal reports of Jesus' death and resurrection, if you like, we can look at the um, early, you can ask me about the dates if you like, but early, multiple and independent, as you say, independent testimonies that are in this chart here on page three. And it would be good just to read through these if we can. And a few. So we want someone to do the Acts 2, 23 to 32. Someone to do 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. Mark 15, 37 to 16 to 7. And Acts 13, <coughs> 28 to 31. Who's got the Acts 2? Yeah, I've got it. Great, thank you. Twenty-three. So this man was handed over to you. Yeah. Yeah. They're talking about Jesus. Yeah. So this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have, made me, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Great. There you go. So you see, you get in that sermon, that's the sermon of Peter at Pentecost, and it's generally thought that in Acts, when Luke is giving these summaries of various speeches, he does, he does a lot of these summaries of speeches in Acts, that he's quoting earlier tradition uh, that, that predate uh, his writing of Acts. So um, Peter obviously gave that Pentecost sermon in AD 33, uh, and it's usually thought that that's, Luke has a fairly reliable access to that early material that he's summarising and you get there of course that Christ died you put him to death by nailing him to a cross that he was buried because he talks about David being in his tomb and that tomb being there to this day uh, but the Christ not seeing decay so he was buried like David but unlike David he hasn't seen decay and he's raised and they, we said we are all witnesses to the fact that he's been raised. Uh, so they have seen the resurrected Jesus. Uh, he's got uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. Mm. Well done, John. What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. There we go. Uh, so as we'll see later, this is Paul quoting an earlier source. Well, generally thought to go back to about, well, AD 36 at the latest. Um, and you've got Christ died, buried, raised, appeared and you get a list of who he appeared 
2. Mark 15, 37 to 67. Thank you. 37? Yeah. Um, with a loud cry, that bit. Yeah. With a loud cry, um, Jesus breathes his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learnt from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph uh, bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb <coughs> out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought the spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going to... He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Great, thank you. It's interesting that Mark's Gospel doesn't record any appearances of the resurrected Jesus. Um, after that point in Mark, there is an additional ending tagged onto it later on in history, but is not in the original earliest copies of Mark that we have. Um, and there's a whole debate over whether or not Mark really ended his gospel there, whether we've he wrote more but we've lost it, <laughs> um, and later scribes tried to sort of they cobbled together from the other gospels the sort of the rest of the story and added that on there because it's like that's a weird place to stop. Um, but that bit about he's going ahead of you into gathering and there you will see him is in the original earliest document so it clearly implies that they're going to see the resurrected Jesus um, as a group so again you get Jesus dying on the cross being buried more detail about how he's buried and so on being risen which would have implied this the empty tomb uh, the tomb being empty and we get mention of the angel and so on but you know he's going ahead into this implication that there will be a, a group of, of disciples seeing the resurrected Jesus and again some not only is Mark generally thought to be the earliest of the Gospels uh, I'm coming around to the view at the moment that it may be as early as 49 AD you could argue for that quite convincingly um, but that's sort of neither here nor there in a sense because some scholars will argue that here in the passion story Mark stops quoting the teaching stories of Peter and is quoting a source from, Jer from the Jerusalem church that's one long chunk of narrative 
um, that predates his writing of the Gospel. He just incorporates this sort of oral source that goes back to the uh, to the 30s uh, AD anyway. Um, so this is very early uh, kind of testimony. Uh, did you notice the role of the women? Uh, the central focus on the role of the women there, which was so culturally embarrassing to them, that when we had the 1 Corinthians 15 reading, no women mentioned. Uh, who's got Acts 13? Yeah, so this is uh, uh, Luke summarising Paul's sermon in uh, Antioch, given about AD 45. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. There we go. So again, an, an, an early source, although um, both of those speeches from, from Acts, obviously they come from Acts, but they're Luke reporting two different sources. Uh, one is Peter, one is Paul. You've got Mark's early source, and you've got the Corinthians Creed quoted by Paul as an early source. Um, and all of those sources, if Christ was crucified in 33, the latest of those sources is the Paul speech from 45. That's multiple, independent, early uh, testimony, um, all giving this same story of Christ killed by crucifixion, buried in a tomb, tomb empty, multiple people seeing him alive thereafter. If you look at the chart I've got you on page four, this looks at the different resurrection appearances uh, as far as I can work it out in, in order that they happened. Uh, so you've got Mary Magdalene first, and the other women, including Mary, the mother of James, and you've got Cleopas and companion on the road to Emmaus. And I've always, always wondered whether that's Cleopas and his wife going home. I presume it doesn't tell us that, but I've always wondered that. Uh, then Peter, then the ten disciples, then the eleven disciples, including this time Doubting Thomas. Then we've got seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee, up to uh, 500 individuals on one occasion. And then uh, another group appearance to the 11 in Galilee, the 11 on the Mount of Olives. And then after the ascension, of course, the appearance to Saul uh, on the road to Damascus. So you've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 separate resurrection appearances noted. There may have been more, but we've got these 11 specified in different places and times. Look at the column of the noted types of interaction here. So it's not just that individuals and groups of people thought they saw Jesus it's say you know Mary Magdalene saw and talked with had a conversation with Jesus and there's an indication that perhaps she touched him because he says don't hold on to me um, the other women saw heard and touched Jesus Cleopas and companions saw and had an extended conversation with um, saw, uh, saw and talked. The eleven disciples saw, talked, heard. So we get seeing, we get hearing, we get touching Jesus. 
Um, and that's one of the things that makes the sort of idea that various people just had hallucinations of Jesus. And that's how the sort of belief in the resurrection started up. Uh, it really stretches that hypothesis. Um, because you have to have such a series of separate hallucinations that all coordinate and agree with each other. They're not just individual appearances, but they include group hallucinations. The very fact of group hallucinations is controversial amongst psychologists anyway. But group hallucinations, where not only do ever, does everyone see the same thing, but they all see and hear the same extended conversation and, and think they touch Jesus and maybe he eats some food with them that still disappeared when he disappears and and so on and so on and so on um, it really kind of <laughs> stretches the bounds of anything in the psychological uh, case books and you see the kind of where these appearances are reported you can see that quite a lot of these appearances are reported in multiple and indeed independent sources you're going over the page to page five this is my most recent research i thought i would break down the resurrection appearances in terms of how many of these historical criteria of authenticity do the individual appearances pass so this is a list of one two three four five six seven eight nine appearances of the resurrected Jesus to individuals and mostly groups and all of these appearance stories pass between four to six separate historical criteria of authenticity so all of these pass at least three even to get on onto the list they're all um, early historically coherent reports of intrinsically memorable things but they also pass additional tests and I've, I've put the columns here and which are those additional tests they pass um, so for example the appearance to the ten disciples reported by John and Luke and 1 Corinthians it's early it's historically coherent with other stuff we know it's intrinsically memorable but also it's it passes eyewitness testimony because it's in John's Gospel if you take John as an eyewitness it's independent testimony because you've got it in John and Luke and Corinthians it's in different historical forms because you've got it in Gospel and in a creed or um, look at the you know the 11 disciples including Thomas that would also pass uh, sort of it's embarrassing that one of the disciples of Jesus wouldn't believe that Jesus was resurrected and took this extra appearance to convince him that you know and Jesus criticizes him for not believing the evidence that he already had so there's something embarrassing about the story or the embarrassment of the fact that Mary Magdalene is the first person to see the resurrected Jesus culturally speaking and so on so um, it's not just that you've got multiple early independent witness to resurrection appearances but you've got nine separate occasions that pass multiple historical criteria across the board uh, so I think even if you approach the, the Gospels thinking this this is all probably just you know highly suspect stuff if you applied the historical criteria fairly you'd have to say at the very least okay we've got multiple occasions where various individuals and groups of individuals believed that they saw the resurrected Jesus afterwards how are you going to account for that would be then well maybe it's all they all had hallucinations or you know were they making it up or were they being deceived somehow all sorts of hypotheses have been put up over the years of course but that's the sort of data that you'd have to uh, 
take on board any points of interest. Yeah, because some are more significant than others, yeah. uh, as I say. So, I mean, the, the the least significant is the one that I, I didn't really mention about historical coherence. Mm. Like, it fits with everything else that we think we can reliably know. Uh, so, it sort of it, it fits into the general picture that we're building up consistently. Well, that's. Yeah, yeah, quite weak. Um, <laughs> I thought the world is flat, and then lots of things fit. Yeah, together, it, it, so exactly. <laughs> but multiple independent witnesses—that's really quite strong. Yeah. So yeah, it will depend you know, which ones, which you think are more significant than others. Basically, you can say the more of these tests, and the more significant those tests are that a thing passes, the more reliable you would think it is. Uh, and then the more that you find a particular source passing multiple tests the more general confidence you would have in stuff that they say uh, anyway um, so but the fact that as I say you've got at least sort of nine things that, that pass between four to six and those include really significant ones like independent testimony eyewitness testimony embarrassment um early so it's not just that they they're they're passing a few of the more insignificant criteria uh, they're passing a lot of the really significant ones as well as some of the less significant ones yeah so just to, f to finish to, f to focus on this 1 Corinthians 15 creed and it's uh, really interesting sort of um, liberal sceptical New Testament scholars who first pointed this out uh, and started a sort of reassessment of um, the reliability of some of the, the historical data in this area. This 1 Corinthians 15, 15 Creed. You've got 1 Corinthians written in about 54-55 AD and Paul writing to the Corinthian church which he had previously set up on a previous you know, missionary journey he refers to the testimony that he himself had received, and he uses a, a, a technical term for the sort of official receiving of an oral tradition, and the technical term for, for the handing on, the delivering of that oral tradition to other people. Um, so he's sort of saying, this isn't stuff that I've made up, this is stuff I was told, and I, you remember, I told you this back when I set the church up. Uh, and that was in about AD 51 that he's referring back to. So he's saying to them in 54-ish, you all remember that I told you this, I handed on this information in 51, that I, that I had, had got from people who already had it before me. Uh, so that information must go back at least to 51, but it's generally thought to go back to within just a few years of the crucifixion itself. I see if, we, if I read this through again for you, a few other points that we can pick out on. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that, and then it's like he's quoting, uh, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, then to the twelve, and then Paul inserts his own comment, then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's in that, that comment about them not all being alive. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then again, Paul interjects his own comment, last of all as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So he's claiming to be an eyewitness. 
to the resurrected Jesus there. Uh, now those words from Christ died for our sins up to then to the twelve are sort of universally accepted as being creedal material and there's a debate over whether um, the rest of the material apart from Paul's insertions up to then to all the apostles is also part of the creed. I think there's a good case that it is all part of a creed because you get you get ten points that you can count off on your fingers. Mm. You know, you know, uh, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve then to more than 500 brethren, then to James, and then to the Apostles. And you've got 10 points uh, to go through. And you like, you can count them off on your fingers. Here are the 10 points that I'm sort of remembering. Um, so he's quoting this early source. We've got really good manuscript evidence for 1, one Corinthians, <laughs> by the way, if anyone asks. Uh, the modern critical text of 1 Corinthians is estimated to have a word-for-word -word accuracy of 97.9%. Um, so we, we know what he was uh, quoting to a high degree of, of certainty. And you can see that this creed itself would pass multiple of those historical criteria, apart from being early and memorable, and apart from the fact that it's being endorsed by an eyewitness is a separate source from what he's quoting, so it's independent testimony, and that there's an Aramaism of the word Cephas instead of the Greek Peter uh, in there, um, and so on. But this really, I think, interesting argument made by N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, he points out that given the, <coughs> the low status of women in the first century, had the tradition about the resurrection appearances started in a male-only form, had that been the original tradition that we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 15, this male-only form, then the tradition would never have developed into the female first stories that we see in the Gospels. That's very culturally unlikely that you'd have a tradition start off all about males and then then the Jewish writers of the gospel you know, say, I think we need to put some women witnesses in here, you know, just to beef it up and make it more plausible. And you know, that would not have happened. Uh, well, Mark was writing under an underpoon. He was really a lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, future generations will quote you on that. Throwing everything up in the air. It's possible. I've, I've heard you know, there's some arguments about whether whether maybe the um, the author of Hebrews was a female because we don't know who the author of Hebrews was. Uh, it's not not listed there, but it does seem that all of the New Testament books were written by guys, um, uh, just given the culture. Um, but yeah, so so Wright argues, argues that the, the Gospels, given this female cultural thing, the Gospel stories must embody the earliest way of telling the story. And the Corinthians Creed it is a later development of how to tell the story to spread the Gospels plausibly in the culture by only listing the, the reliable male witnesses to things and leaving out those pesky unreliable females. But so the, the information we get in the Gospels must actually be going back to a source that's earlier than the 1 Corinthians 15 creed. But if even the sceptical New Testament scholars admit that the 1 Corinthians 15 creed is giving us information from within three years of the crucifixion, <laughs> the information that we get in the Gospels, even if some of them were written later than 1 Corinthians, is actually information that goes back even earlier. Um, which is just like, well, that's, this is on, right on top of the event. 
basically this is like no gap at all in terms of ancient history um, which is quite astounding so uh, there are excellent historical reasons for saying yeah these texts we have in the New Testament give us some really reliable information that you've got to wrestle with and, and, and do something with you've got to explain it or explain it away plausibly somehow you can't just say as unfortunately you know, various new atheist writers I could point to at the moment say you know, the trouble with the resurrection is there's just no evidence you know, uh, the gospels are about as reliable as Jack and the Beanstalk the only difference between the Da Vinci Code and the gospels <laughs> is that, you know, the Da Vinci Code sell, sells more copies at uh, airports or whatever you know it's like um, no <laughs> uh, there really is uh, uh, even on a, on a sort of sceptical approach if you're playing fair with the historical rules there's a hard core of data there that you've got to do something with could you have extended your tables with uh, literature that's not found in the Bible yes yeah absolutely um, but not a huge amount obviously our primary data is the data that got included in in the New Testament um, what kinds of things are sources that are not so I think um, there are I think 11 something like 11 uh, extra biblical sources from the first and second centuries that mention Jesus's death by crucifixion <coughs> Um, there are, and there are. S what, what sort of documents are they? Um, so, like Dead Sea Scrolls. So yeah, it was things like Josephus and uh, oh. Jewish historian or Roman historian Tacitus. Um, and there's sort of mention of the uh, after the crucifixion, uh, the disciples were sort of dispirited for a while, but then they cl they claimed that Jesus was alive or the sort of the superstition broke out again, having been sort of suppressed. Um, but it's it's mainly the, the most recorded fact about Jesus is his death. Um, you know, by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, you can, you can put together that information from extra uh, biblical sources. Um, We need a very quick so what though, don't we? <laughs> um, you know, um, so we've got the historical evidence that it happens, but what was the what was the point of it? Well, I'm doing a sermon on Sunday <laughs> that, that's very much aimed at that, but. Yeah, well, there's so much point to it that one hardly knows uh, where to start. But the w one major point to it is who this happened to. It, it's not just like, oh, that's a strange thing to happen to some guy. It's that it happens to Jesus. And given the claims that he made about himself and about God and God's kingdom and the role that he should play in your religious life, you know, given that it was him who was crucified making all the disciples think oh well we backed the wrong guy he wasn't the Messiah after all he's under the curse of God oh whoops it's that that guy is resurrected would seem to put a huge stamp of God's approval <laughs> on him it's kind of God publicly vindicating and reversing what they thought was the, you know, the the condemnation of Jewish by, of Jesus by the religious authorities and so on is that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Oh well, that must mean that he was right in what he claimed. Um, he's right about the kingdom of God. He's he's right about the new covenant in his blood and body that he inaugurated at the Last Supper. And so he's right about that. So he's right about how we live in a forgiving relationship with God, 
you know, that the new kingdom is here, um, that there's a new covenant. Uh, how do we work that out into this new Christian life and community that you see forming in the first generation of Christians in the New Testament epistles and so on? So, um, and then, of course, Paul applies that to, you know, Jesus is the first fruits. He was resurrected in a resurrection body. And we who believe in him will likewise be resurrected um, in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, no, it's not just that we get forgiven and we get to go and be in heaven sort of as a soul apart from our body with God for eternity, but rather that we'll also get a resurrected body in a resurrected world. Um, God is going to do to the whole world what he's done in the small sample of Jesus's body. <laughs> when he gets this resurrected spiritual body, we get a res look forward to a resurrected spiritual world where the will of God and what happens in reality gets to be much closer together than it is at the moment. Um, so we have a hope and a destiny for eternity that is grounded in an actual historical happen happening. Uh, we have a hope that's not just a, a nice philosophical thought or why don't you live your life like this, which a lot of philosophies or spiritualities or whatever will give you, but a sort of neck on the line truth claim of either he wrote, rose from the dead or he didn't. If he didn't, go and join some other religion. If he did, you know, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to follow him or not? <laughs> um, and that's the, the message that the, the disciples take out, you know. Uh, there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved than Jesus Christ. And God has given evidence of all this to, to everyone by raising him from the dead. And we are the witnesses. Um, get on board. Um, yeah, we really have to read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 yeah, as well, don't yeah. we? And just after that creed. Right. If Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied, etc. But, he says... Christ has been raised from the dead, and therefore, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 